Well, hello and welcome to episode number 455 of the Plain Talking UK podcast. In this week's show, we've got disruptive behaviour uh, from both humans and bees, and we bring you the first segment of our visit to the Museum of Flight at East Fortune in Scotland. This week, we'll also bring you an outstanding interview from listener James Graves-Brown talking to one of his connections about radio-controlled aircraft flying. And instead of the military this week, we'll pay homage to King Charles's flying career. Joining me on the show this week, as always, over in the PTUK Master Suite Studios with a huge bottle of beer, it's Matt Smith. Hello. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Doing, doing several things at once. Uh, come back to me, would you? Come back to you. Yeah, He's please. not here. No. Uh, but joining us across the, across the fields, the rivers, the dales, the many glorious buttercup-filled fields in the UK, it is, of course, Neville Bounds. Yes, here we are, back again. Uh, wasn't around last week due to operational difficulty. Um, well, I've had a new grandson since then. Uh, Mrs. Nevis had an operation on her hand since then. Um, and I've been working all week, which has not been helpful for anybody. But uh, I am now back and uh, I'm ready to give you my full attention. Looking forward to the show tonight as well. Lots of great stuff on it. So. Uh, of course, uh, yes. of course. Let's not forget, Nev, uh, that um, you did appear in yesterday in last week's show. Yesterday, honestly, uh, it feels like yesterday because we were talking. <laughs> we were talking about the uh, the old uh, BA safety video, weren't we? Oh yes, yes, oh, indeed. Yes. Yeah. I did uh, listen back to some of that, and uh, yes, it did generate a lot of uh, comment and interest. Uh, although I have to say that I think most people that did comment, uh, I feel completely vindicated. <laughs> <laughs> my opinion about it so i, I will uh, we're flying again next on the uh, 18th of may uh, off to uh, faro in portugal so we'll see if they do the safety video then indeed, indeed. well i had some good feedback nev because Stuart aslett called me early this week and uh, he listened back to the show with your comments on the video and he thought it was marvelous nev your comments and absolutely correct because obviously Stuart, as um, some of the listeners might know, Stuart is his ex-cabin crew uh, from many years, sort of the late 90s, Stuart was uh, cabin crew. But um, yeah, he agreed with you, Nev. He, and he thoroughly enjoyed the discussion as well we had on the show. Well, I sort of thought he might, because he's a very sensible fellow, isn't he? Uh, so, uh, but yeah, anyway, let, let's see how it's uh, received as it's now being rolled out uh, onto the BA fleet. Ooh, look forward to that. Hearing your hearing your thoughts on that when you're on board the aircraft, Nev. And also joining us this week, and he's got a glorious background. I think he sprouted some wings, uh, as he is our resident pilot on the show of all things with wings. It is, of course, Armando. Hello, everybody. Hello, everybody in the chat room. I'm sure we're going to get around to it, but the chat room has filled up quite nicely today. Um, I will only be on the first 30 minutes of the show because I actually have to go aviate this afternoon. Mm -hmm. uh, quick trip down to Alabama and back. As you do. <laughs> as, as one does, yeah. As one does, indeed. I have a quick mention, actually, quickly, to someone who's joined us in the chat room. One of our younger viewers of the show, who's not far from uh, where me and Matt is here. So, <laughs> good evening, Oscar. 
he's catching the show, I expect, before he heads off uh, to the land of Nod. So <laughs> give, give him a wave, guys. Say hello to Oscar. I, I think he's got a, a late-night reprieve because um, uh, Elliot's busy doing something else, so he gets to stay up a bit longer, oh. I think. Yeah, I know. It's all right for some. Carlos, can I ask a small favour? Could you bring your volume down ever so slightly, please? Oh, I am you're, sorry. You're a little bit... Sorry uh, for being I mean, I, Yeah, you know, always happy for you to be sort of dominant, <laughs> but, uh, you know, when it's overpowering everyone else, it's... Uh, More on that later. Yeah, quite... Um, <laughs> Uh, literally family show please moving on <laughs> moving swiftly on so we've got loads of stuff loads of content in the show this week including as we said at the top of the show our video the first video from our trip me and nev's trip Ooh, to that museum on the bac 111 uh, which was very interesting nev i say in including the smells yes i it's very difficult to describe the smell uh musty I oh. think would be the one that oh uh, would be the best description of it. Uh, but uh, yeah, we're going to play that out a bit later on uh, in the show. So, uh, yeah, we're looking forward. You're to really it. selling not, it to me. It's not in smell of vision. Okay, no, that's a good thing. Oh. We should have bottled some up there, brought some back yeah. from oh, that. Yeah. Um, but it is the beginning of May, as we all know, the fifth of May, and uh, it's an important time of the month because it is a time where we say a big thanks to some very special people indeed, don't we, Nev? Yeah, absolutely. And of course, uh, it's your assistance that keeps the show on the road. It helps us with uh, media serving costs, uh, website costs, and everything. So the Patreon and PayPal donators are very important. And uh, for this month, uh, they are uh, Bill Aronek, uh, Sam Dawson, Alex Robinson, Dirk S, Sasha Beer, Stephen Ivey, Nick Codling, Louis Cacharez, uh, Alan White, Stephen Howland, Tanya Wyman, Nick Hewitt, Masha, Reuben Wells, uh, Neil Lamborn, Graham Haley, Jonathan Warner, Eric Graves, Jordan Rose, Andrew Wilson, Captain Jeff, Adam Spink, Liz Piper, Jeff Ward, Jenny Parkinson, Stuart Backer, Ray Williams and Stephanie Plummer. And for those that contributed by PayPal, uh, Mazuz Kareem, thank you Mazuz, and Craig Urasoko. Uh, very much uh, appreciated uh, by all of us here and thank you very much once again for contributing. Yes, because it does help to uh, to do, well, helps us to do things like we did at the museum, doesn't it, Nev? It, um, it helped immensely with our trip to uh, the museum because it's not uh, just it's not just outside is uh, uh, outside uh, Edinburgh is it Nev? It's more yes. a little bit of drive. Yes, we're very grateful to Paul who gave us a lift back from uh, the airfield to Leith because we couldn't get a taxi in time. Oh. Um, so uh, that. That worked out very well. Um, so we, had, we got a cab there, okay, but coming back was a bit more tricky. So uh, thanks very much indeed to Paul, uh, and also for his assistance in showing us around the museum and uh, organising everything, uh, along with Ian, who's the curator. We'll be doing a much longer uh, interview with uh, Ian uh, as the weeks go by. Oh, more or less, I mean, when I get around to editing it, that's what I really meant to say. Um, so. yes. But, uh, yeah, great, uh, great trip, and uh, you'll see some of it shortly. I'm looking forward to that interview, Nev, to what to, to listen to that again because that was very good. Yeah. Yeah. So let's say thanks to everyone who's joined us in the YouTube chat room this evening. Let's have a look at the top of the list. Who was in there first? Oh, Nev, you were in there first. Well done. <laughs> Uh, Mazus, hello to Mazus, uh, one of our local listeners as well. Uh, Richard Adams is in there. He's got a beer on the go. Well done, Richard. Serve I. Got a little, uh, little dry lager, sort of. As what is this? As as high lager. It's quite nice. Bless you. Uh, it's uh, 
hello to Oscar as well. That's it, Asahi. Thank you, John. And uh, hello to Haley, uh, who's in there, aka Oscar. He's uh, he's in the chat and watching the show. And Aaron, he's also joined us this evening. Nick Codling's in there, one of our uh, very loyal mm, helpers of the show is familiar. in there. Yeah. Uh, John, hello to John Falk. Good to see you in there as well. Um, scrolling down the list, Hobby Time. Hello, Hobby Time. Uh, Lee Davies, it's his birthday on Tuesday, so make sure we all wish uh, Lee a happy birthday for Tuesday. The party's already started, apparently. Uh, Fly152, he's in there as well from just down the road. Hello to you as well. APG Show, they've uh, just dropped in to see how, how it's all done here, you know, how we start on time and all that. <laughs> and uh, you know, I invited uh, I invited him to come on the show, and he said he's prepping, and I said, you guys prep? <laughs> Okay. Well, quite, yes. <laughs> uh, main man Micah. Yeah. Uncle Micah. Hello to you. Mark Priestley as well. Um, oh, he's, he's apparently Mark's just sold the house. It's time for a beer. Well done, Mark. Good to see you in there. And uh, yeah, hello to everyone who's joined us. Don't forget, if you're listening to our voices on the world of iTunes or, or a pod, an audio podcast and you want to see how beautiful we all look on tv uh, just join us on youtube don't forget to hit the How subscribe button and the bell icon wow. to be notified when we are live on air and uh, it does work so I, I got the push notification earlier so it does definitely work <laughs> but we have got tons of aviation news this week so it's nice to have all the team here so good if all the team are ready yeah let's go So, kicking off this week's first news story comes to us from Sky News, uh, news.stv.tv and heraldscotland.com. And the headline, Jet 2 bans Glasgow passenger for life after flight diverts due to disruptive behaviour. It's about time we saw a headline like this. Uh, in a recent incident involving unruly behaviour, a Glasgow man has been banned for life flying with Jet 2. The airline was forced to divert its flight from Glasgow on to Turkey after the passengers' disruptive actions jeopardised the safety and comfort of others on board. The flight made an unscheduled stop in Bulgaria to remove the individual before continuing on to its final destination. The man who was on a flight from Glasgow to, uh, Glasgow to Antalya reportedly displayed disgraceful behaviour that led to the diversion, according to airline officials. His unacceptable behaviour reportedly included the illicit consumption of alcohol, surprise, surprise, which prohibited on board as well as physical and verbal aggression. The decision to divert the flight to Sofia in Bulgaria was made uh, in the interest of maintaining a secure environment for everyone on board. And after the passenger was removed, the flight resumed its journey to Antalya and Jet 2 
has a strict uh, zero tolerance policy towards disruptive passengers uh, as it's not only compromises the well-being of fellow passengers and crew but also potentially incurs additional costs as we all know for delays to the airline and uh, yeah it's not the first time we've seen stories like this guys on the show we seem to cover them fairly frequently but um this is one of the first that I've seen where someone has been given a lifetime ban for an airline. I, I mean, I think it's quite commonplace in the States, isn't it? I mean, I've seen a few bans, um, like, I'm trying to think. I, I seem to remember, was it, was it American or someone like that, where there's there's been some bans put in place? I think it, yeah, it's, I think it's quite unusual for, in Europe, I think. There's two different levels where, one, the airline bans you, where, you know, and they keep you from booking on their airline. And then if you are disruptive enough and you get involved with law enforcement, then you end up on the actual TSA no-fly list, um, which bans you from booking a ticket on anybody. So kind of two different levels here. Mm. Good. About time we had some punitive uh, treatments. <laughs> uh, I would like to see the Civil Aviation Authority banning these people, not just the airline. Uh, let's go the whole hog. Uh, you cannot have a situation where uh, a disruptive passenger causes this sort of situation. I don't know how many more times we have to say it. It's, uh, it's a safety-critical item, mm. so don't do it. And if you do it, you're going to get banned. Quite. It begs a question. That. I wonder whether Ryanair and EasyJet, you know, there are other two big carriers here in the UK, will pick up on this guy's name and stop him from boarding their aircraft. Oh, I'm, I'm sure there is. There... I'm sure there's a yeah. bit of a, a back channel WhatsApp thing going on somewhere unofficially. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, can they though? I mean, think if, I guess they can. Can can they though? Because of the whole like GDPR thing here in the UK. Well, there's lots of unofficial ways of doing many things. <laughs> I, I, in fact, I spent the last 61 years of my life doing that. So. Uh, and I've got away with it so far. Um, so, but uh, no, I mean, uh, his name is out there uh, in the public domain and uh, people will know who he is. Oh, yes. And need I say any more? Well, oh, dear. No, quite. Well, don't, th then. Uh, <laughs> well, and we'll, we'll see another one of these stories next week. Right. Right, <laughs> moving on. Armando. Armando, you've got uh, the next story all about uh, pilot's health. Yeah, well, this was something uh, that has made it I guess around the aviation community now, and specifically in the military community, there's a sort of a second part that I won't talk about. Um, maybe I'll talk about it on, on a future episode, but there's a new study that just came out that many pilots are avoiding medical professionals due to the fear that revealing their health problems will lead to the loss of their pilot certificates. Now, this is not new. I think this has gone on for a long, long time. But according to the study, two thirds of military and paid civilian pilots answered yes to at least one of the four survey questions that um, General Aviation News uh, put out, addressing their reluctance to seek formal medical advice about their health problems. So obviously knowing that they could be grounded, uh, which could have negative occupational, social, financial repercussions, pilots see disincentives to be truthful about their health care. That's a quote from the study. If there's a chance that their employers or the FAA that could, uh, could find out, that's according to Dr. William Hoffman, who is a U.S. Air Force employee at the Brooke Army Medical Center in uh, Fort Sam Houston, Texas. So the survey was conducted in 2019. Hoffman found out that 75% of pilots worried about seeking medical care due or, or uh, 
due to the concern for their career or their hobby, right? Because we're talking about different class medicals. So this new survey that they conducted expands this previous research by asking about specific aspects of that reluctance to seek medical care. So the pilots were asked to agree or disagree with several statements, statements such as, uh, quote, sought informal medical advice for fear of certificate loss. Uh, another one was flu, despite experiencing a new symptom, whether physical or psychological, that warranted evaluation. Uh, third was do not uh, did not disclose prescription medication use. Fourth was misrepresented or withheld information on a written healthcare questionnaire for fear of certificate loss. And the fifth one was a the web-based survey was completed by uh, 2,383 non-professional civilian pilots, 1,097 paid civilian pilots, and 261 military pilots. So just over half of the of the unpaid civilian pilots denied ever hiding any of the four types of information, according to the survey. That was true for about 33% of the paid civilian pilots and 32% of military pilots. The survey also found out that 6.8% of the pilots said they had not disclosed prescription drug use as required, and 16% acknowledged that they kept new symptoms secret. It also found that 45%, which is, I think, low, sought informal advice in place of seeing a professional, while 26% that they had with, uh, withheld or misrepresented information on written forms, aka your FAA MedExpress, um, which we have to do every time you renew your medical. So very few of the pilots, just 2.2%, admitted that they had been completely honest <laughs> in uh, all, all four types of this, this reluctant categories. The study also found out that women were more likely than men to disclose to avoid disclosure, at least in one way. That's 62% versus 55% of men. Younger pilots, those between 25 and 40, were also more likely to avoid disclosure than older pilots. That's over the age of 60. And union membership was associated with high rates of avoidance up to 70% versus non-union pilots at 50%. Now, active duty military was also associated with high rates of avoidance at 75%. So what does this mean to us? This is this is a huge thing. And there's a, I don't know, I have a personal issue with this because right now there is an effort on behalf of the FAA that they are cross-referencing their records with uh, the Veterans Administration here in the United States. And I don't know if it's specifically targeting veterans, but this effort is certainly seems to to do so, where if you have received any kind of disability benefits from the Veterans Administration, so service-connected, that, that could be anything from like bad knees to arthritis to, you know, as, as far as uh, PTSD or psychological conditions, or maybe even just a combat injury or non, non-combat injury. If you didn't declare that to the FAA, they're actually, they have taken enforcement action against people. Um, we have talked about this on the show before. I think um, anybody, and I, Carlos and, and Matt, and I, I think we had a small discussion a couple of weeks ago about, you know, you as professional drivers, as professional pilots, as professional, anything where you are responsible for the lives of people, it's, it's our responsibility to, to disclose those, uh, those things. But man, I, w- I was listening. It was one of, um, aviate with shasta mm. it was one oh, of yeah. her first episodes where she had a, a guest on and it was so poignant because this guest said 
aviation, professional aviation is, is the only job that she could think of where somebody's trying to take your, your job away from you constantly. like every six months. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Constantly <laughs> right. That could be in danger. Yeah. Yeah. That could be your check rides every six months, your medical every six months or a year or every two years or five years, depending on, on your class of medical, um, just day to day operations. It basically it's a job where everybody's trying to take your job. And this is just another thing that this is an easy way for, it is common for pilots to separate their general practitioner, you know, their, their family medicine versus their FAA doctor. And sometimes those two things don't, uh, don't cross. And, and this survey is, is pointing to the fact that there's the FAA has created such an environment. I'm not, I guess I'm not blaming the FAA, but, um, there is such an environment that, that people do not feel comfortable, uh, myself included. If I were to declare any condition, whether it's the most uh, benign condition, I know that if, there, if it falls under the, um, the aeromedical examiner guide as something that they can't issue a medical, that has to be deferred, that's my job gone for three months, yeah. six months, nine months until they come up with a you know, determination. So it's just a terrible problem and so i hope the faa has taken a look i at mean so, for, forgive my sort of prying being nosy i guess here armando but um i mean is is it possible to get uh, like insurance against these things um so the the closest thing and this is actually encouraged is uh, organizations like the aopa have a pilot protection uh, to legal services and um you know, obviously, if you've, if you've been declared, if you're in the 2% of pilots that have been completely honest and you're declaring everything, then you have nothing to worry about. But if you fall in any other category, um, because it is such a high interest item or a special interest item right now, you can participate in the AOPA um, legal services plans that there's different levels depending on what, what, you know, whether you're a private pilot, commercial pilot, instructor, things like that. And uh, that could be your avenue where if the FAA were to ever question you, um, the first thing you do is say talk to my lawyer wow okay as, as, as straight in like that no no sort of messing type sort of wow okay yeah uh, in, interestingly enough fly 152 is saying that for f private flying if you're not going into europe you can avoid a medical altogether if you're worried and self-certify your medical for free wow I assume that's sort of like as you, private flying, as in just like flying a little, um, yeah. let's, let's say a Cessna 150 as, a, as an example, I guess. Well, and we have some avenues here. So like basic med is an, is an avenue, but you, you have to have held, pre, you have to have previously held a valid medical yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, before you can be issued a basic med certificate to wow. go fly, a, you know, essentially a, a light aircraft. Wow. Okay. Gosh, um, well, it's probably not the last we'll hear of the of this story. Uh, just going back to uh, I, somebody's going to get really cross here, I think, with their <laughs> mum. Um, but uh, there we go. Look, he's busy watching on his iPad. Look. Oh. <laughs> Hello, Oscar. <laughs> Probably, probably shouting at mummy about now. I would say. Anyway, yeah, <laughs> we go. Uh, right, um, moving on. Yeah. Matt, you have got uh, the next story. 
Uh, all about we've, had, we've talked about this before, haven't we? A long while ago on the show, air mo- urban air mobility. Ooh, sounds exciting indeed. Yes. Uh, so this one's coming from the FAA.gov, and as Carlos says, the headline is FAA, FAA updates concept of operations for urban air mobility. So the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, has released an updated version of the concept of operation ConOps uh, version two for urban air mobility UAM. Uh, The uh, document outlines the agency's approach to integrating UAM vehicles such as air taxis and drones with the National Aerospace System. The document uh, identifies the key stakeholders involved, outlines the operational and safety requirements and discusses the infrastructure and integration challenges. The FAA's approach to UAM operations is aimed at ensuring safety, uh, security and efficiency in the national airspace system while promoting innovation and economic benefits to society. The 80-page document is highly detailed but there are just three key points brought up by the document UAM operations procedures the UAM operations procedures describe the steps involved in different types of UAM operations such as air taxi package delivery and infrastructure inspection for air taxi operations the procedures include safety checks before takeoff passenger screening and communication with air traffic control during the flight for package delivery the procedures include identifying delivery locations, loading and unloading packages and tracking their location. For infrastructure inspection, the procedures include safety checks, uh, collecting data and analysing the condition of infrastructure. UAM integration into the National Airspace System, the NAS. One challenge is managing the increasing complexity of airspace use as more UAM vehicles are introduced. To address this, the document proposes creating designated routes for a uh, UAM vehicles and using UAM traffic management systems. The document also proposes introducing automated flight rules, AFR, alongside VFR and IFR. Other challenges include creating new regulations and standards for UAM operations, developing new technologies for airspace management and integrating UAM operations with other modes of transportation. The UAM infrastructure uh, describes the requirements for UAM infrastructure such as vertiports and ground support equipment. Vertiports need to be designed to accommodate different types of UAM vehicles with uh, consideration for their size, weight and landing gear. Sustainable building materials and renewable energy sources should be used in their construction. Ground support equipment should be capable, uh, sorry, should be compatible with multiple types of of UAM vehicles as well as other aircraft standardization and interoperability of UAM infrastructure. It is important for seamless UAM operations across different locations and jurisdictions. Challenges include creating new regulations and financing models, finding suitable locations and coordinating with other infrastructure providers. Now, apologies, there's lots of very big words in there, to be honest with you. But um, I I guess this is just um, dotting the I's and crossing the T's a bit. Is this Armando, to be fair? Yeah, this is like it's coming. Like Winter is coming. (laughs) You know, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) how many years have we been talking about? 
this kind of the 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 urban air mobility and and all these kinds of drone operations it's it's just a sign that it's it's coming down you know you know you're down the process uh, pretty far down the process when the government is getting involved and starting to make rules so but uh, I was just thinking it's more acronyms for you to learn, Matt. Thank you. Yes, I'm always grateful. No, it is a re- it's a really interesting story, actually, because, I mean, this is something that I do have a bit of a, a sort of interest in and a passion, because I love, uh, I love uh, like, the drones and, and all that kind of thing. And, and for me, this... This really is an extension of that, isn't it? Where the drones are—it's basically a drone, but it's just much, much bigger, and it's got—you uh, know—it's capable of carrying much more stuff. It can carry people and stuff like that. So, actually, I think it's a really interesting story, personally. Could have uh, done with this this morning, driving through this. <laughs> really? An urban air taxi. Anyway. Right. Okay. That very good. That, that's what I like to hear. The- <laughs> I'm sure uh, it's like self-driving vehicles and lorries will soon be on the roads or you're going to have to update the road rules for that the government will right don't tell anyone but uh, there are trials going on on the m6 as we speak with uh, uh they're like they're lorries but uh, there's like five or so i was watching a video when i last did my um cpc which is the recurrent training that you have to do as a coach driver um and i watched this amazing video where essentially um five lorries were like digitally tied together they weren't physically connected to each other but they were following in re- yeah well in the fact that it's using um gps technology and they're literally not even f- not even a meter apart from each other they're following each other that closely but because it's all computer controlled of course then it, it stops and it breaks and all this so that you know it's it's becoming very much um you know commonplace. They, they, they burst 22 tires when they go down the pole. quite right yeah absolutely <laughs> <laughs> yes well, I guess if there's a ferry right on the M6, right? nobody lives in the northwest of England. No, 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 quite. Yeah, yeah. What do we? What do we think? Uh, yeah, what do we think about um, interview? Uh, sorry, introducing <laughs> AFR. Uh, That's the one. Yeah, go with that. <laughs> probably more questions on my FAA knowledge tests. Okay, uh, right. I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean. So for, for for Mr. Joe Bloggs here, what 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 is the difference between those those various acronyms? Well, I think we we pretty much talked about VFR and IFR. So visual flight rules and instrument flight rules. Yep. Those are um, flight rules that has actually nothing to do with the with the weather. Excuse me, that is my cue to go. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it has nothing to do with the weather. It's just what what uh, rules you can fly under, right? So you could be flying IFR. IFR certified in an IFR airplane in complete clear blue skies, um, and VFR is is the weather and the rules that you fly under. Um, so AFR would just would almost be more targeted towards your manned air assets. So those people flying IFR and VFR to understand where these kinds of vehicles will operate and how will they operate so you can avoid them because they it's in the name right afr automated flight rules they are going to be automated and it's probably going to be incumbent upon the manned asset to uh, avoid these kinds of things okay that's first heard for me though the afr so yeah good job john john summarized (laughs) that story for us and uh it is a good story i feel like we'll be talking about that a lot in the future. Mm. So yeah, next, oh, next story. Not, um, moving on. No, no. He's out. He's out. He's Armando's out. He's got to go, yeah. Goes, say goodbye, say show. goodbye, Armando. Goodbye, Armando. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. See you later.
Okay. Don't, forget to, don't forget to send us your tracking notes so I can stalk oh, you. Anyway, yes. uh, Nev, it's got the next story. You, you know I will be. I know, I, uh, it's not it's, in doubt, yeah. It's uh, flight cancellations, Nev, your favourite subject. Yes, oh, this is a great story. I'm, I'm loving this, but I've got to be professional during this story, so I'll try and do so. Uh, it's on simpleflying.com. Uh, it says that Europe was the worst affected global region for cancellations by some distance. European flight cancellations shot up in March as airlines faced a sharp rise in striking action from aviation workers. Over 14,000 flights were cancelled during the month, with almost every global region suffering a rise in cancellations. According to Sirium data, Europe saw 14,405 flights scrapped in March, a 65% increase on February's total of 8,713. Europe was by by far the largest regional jump in a month that saw global cancellations rise to over 72,900, a 20% increase on the 60,780 in February. As quoted, quoted by the Irish Times, Sirium CEO Jeremy Bowen, obviously the other Jeremy Bowen, uh, attributed <laughs> the region's struggle to a number of last-minute air traffic control and airport strikes, particularly the air traffic control strikes in France that have impacted over 50 days in 2023 alone, a tenfold rise on all of 2022. German aviation has also suffered its fair share of industrial action this year, including huge transport network strikes towards the end of March. Ryanair has said that the French ATC strikes alone have caused it to cancel over 3,700 flights, impacting around 660,000 passengers. Whilst uh, EasyJet's CEO Johan Lundgren, uh, Lundgren believes up to 10 million passengers overall may have been affected by the strike so far. The domestic situation has become a wider headache for European airspace, as a significant number of flights need to pass over French territory on their optimal route. Data from Eurocontrol reveals 15% of flights to and from Spain were impacted between March the 1st and April the 9th, whilst Germany, Italy and the UK experienced disruption to 6 to 8% of its flights due to the French airspace situation. Now, um, just a bit of background here. Uh, Ryanair, amongst others, have started a petition calling on Ursula von der Leyen to take action to protect EU and British citizens over flights during French ATC strikes. The petition currently has over 750,000 signatures. Uh, so far in 2023, French ATC strikes have forced Ryanair to cancel over 4,000 flights, mainly over flying France. Uh, they say it's unacceptable that France uses minimum service legislation to project, uh, protect French flights during these repeated ATC strikes, whilst overflights, none of which are operating to and from France, suffer all of these cancellations. This is unfair, and the EU must act now to protect overflights and the EU single market. Uh, Ryanair has repeatedly called on the EU Commission and Ursula von der Leyen to take action to protect EU passengers and overflights during repeated French ATC strikes. Ryanair calls on all passengers to sign our petition. Um, well, all I've got to say about that is since I've been interested in aviation, which is a very, very, very long time, uh, French ATC strikes have been a feature of the things that I read about, <laughs> and I don't see anything going to change that, no matter what the EU no. do. So, no. um, 
it's uh, it's all to do well it's at the end of the day uh, it's French uh, employment law and what they do and what the unions are doing so I don't really see how the EU can possibly compensate for any of that so um, mm. good luck with that folks <laughs> the, pro- the problem is when they when they have these strikes and uh, and the French air traffic controllers go on strike it's it's the airlines who get it in the neck from from customers even though technically it's not the airlines fault if they're being held up by some another you know someone else yes i mean it's a bit like um when you hear passengers complaining about uh weather you know down yeah. weather or weather at the destination well it's fine outside um but of course mm. 1500 miles away there's a gale blowing or it's you know it's unsuitable weather conditions whatever it is it's it's a fact of life and we're going to have to put up with it i'm afraid um and obviously there are alternatives the aircraft has to take on more, more fuel the uh flight times longer scheduling is more challenging um and all the rest of it but i really don't i mean if they can solve it, great. I, I'm up for that. I think the likelihood of solving it is just short of nil. I, I would say. Yeah, I bet. I mean, I, to be fair, Nev. I, I mean, I, I I remember where it's been nothing but uh, you know, sort of strikes and stuff, or or other flights being inf- impacted because um, the the airspace is closed, and so people are having to come up with creative ways of getting to where they want to to be, and you know, flights being extended by sort of several hours because of as a result because of avoiding French airspace and all that kind of thing. <laughs> now we're. we're... We're not being sort of anti-French here because there has been uh, industrial action in other parts of Europe as oh, well. Oh, yes, absolutely. We about Italy and Germany and, you know, UK's had uh, baggage handling issues and mm. uh, op- ground operational issues generally uh, recently. So it's not just about this, but obviously it's it's quite a quite a big thing, isn't it? So uh, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Germany as well. John was saying in yes. in, in our ears Sorry, there, yeah. but yeah. Uh, yeah, it's just sort of trying to find the the sort of solution and, and and that really. But then it's no different to what's going on here in the UK. Obviously, if, you know, there's a lot of striking going on and that, and you know, they all have very good reasons. Uh, Heathrow security strikes. I think um, were, was it. Uh, yesterday or today i think there were some strikes going on at heathrow uh, and some more in the pipeline um into and next all I, week all apparently. i would say about that is in my experience when there's been a, a security strike at heathrow if it's to do with border force not anything else but if it's to do with border force and they bring the army in uh, those queues go down extremely quickly <laughs> do, do you think it's because they're standing there with you know sort of like um, <laughs> large large like guns and things and so a little bit scared uh, they're, they they're like. just incredibly efficient um, well yeah true. that's my experience of it anyway i've been through yeah. there four times i think when the uh, uh, the army have been there and uh, it's worked like a dream so yeah. uh, i'm sure that's not the case in every situation no, no, no. i do get that <laughs> but uh, i think um, people might might just take note of that that's all Quite, indeed. So, <laughs> we better buzz on with the next story. Oh, um, for sake. <laughs> it's the wine that's talking now. Is it? Um, right. Yes. Uh, it's coming to us from businessinsider.com and independent.co.uk. A flight has been delayed by bees Ooh. on the wing. Oh. Yes. A Delta Airlines flight from Houston to Atlanta was delayed due to a swarm of bees on the aircraft's wing. Passenger Anjetty shared the story on Twitter as the incident unfolded. Journalist Ms. Anjetty tweeted a picture of the bees and said, My flight leaving Houston is delayed because bees 
have congregated on the tip of one of the wings. They won't let us board until they remove the bees. But how on earth will this happen, she said. Won't they leave the wing when we take off? Cool, a bit harsh, that would be, wouldn't it, you know? <laughs> In the thread, I mean, it uh, might work. It might work. In the thread, uh, she explains that other passengers uh, thought the bees appeared after the aircraft arrived at the gate. She subsequently shared a picture of an airport crew member taking a photo of the bees on the plane's wing. After it transpired that a beekeeper wouldn't be coming and that there wasn't another Delta aircraft available, she shared pictures of crew members huddling together and appearing to plan what to do next. Passengers were then taken off the plane and the flight crew left as well. After several failed attempts to ditch the bees, Grand equipment was used to push back the aircraft with no passengers on board, and the airline said in a statement. Uh, this helped to remove the bees from the plane's wing. So in Miss N. Jetty's words, she said, Oh, my God, y'all. Entire flight crew declined. Wow. I know. <laughs> Delta. Delta decided to give wow. our gate another flight as soon as the aircraft turn, engines turned on. The bees left. I'm not surprised with all that noise. Uh, all Delta had to do was turn on the aircraft, she said. Uh, initially, the passengers were still unsure whether they'd be able to travel on the aircraft, but they were at least uh, last moved onto another gate for boarding. The aircraft did eventually take off, and it landed in Atlanta two hours after boarding. I mean, in this situation, we have. I mean, we've got in the UK. We must. We have. We have hundreds of beekeepers, don't we, all around the area? I mean, I know a couple myself. People who keep bees, but perhaps this is something that um, you need. To, we need to sort of have on at all airports across the globe now as a, a resident <laughs> beekeeper. Right. Okay. Uh, my, uh, main man Mike is saying, but I guess the stinger is they had to wait until they could get them removed. <laughs> Am I right in thinking? I'm not a beekeeper, but isn't it something you do with? If there's a queen or something there, they all get attracted something to the... Something like that, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, APG Show is saying, uh, to be or not to be, that is indeed the question. Uh, Micah has been abuzz with it for days. <laughs> I like Nick's comment. <laughs> Carlos's accent is unbelievable. <laughs> yes, uh, we're, we're all a bit shocked as well, to be fair, Nick. And uh, Richard Adams is back from uh, the US uh, later in the month. He's come back with his mid-Atlantic twang. I'm oh, goodness. Yeah. Can, can barely can barely hold my contain my excitement. Uh, Richard Adams is saying, if I had been a if, if it had been a B A flight, they'd have uh, behaved properly. Of course, this is quality, indeed. Like I mean, forgive my naivety here. I guess is it because of the because the engines are sort of like not near the ends of the wings. I mean, could they have quite easily and safely sort of you know like started because i'm sure they'd start to leave as you began to like roll down the runway um mark Priestley saying fly be no more <laughs> you would think that would be the best option wouldn't you just to just to get everyone on and roll down the runway and watch them all but i think that's yeah, that's I cruel yeah, i like I bees bees serve a purpose yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, what, what, we're just ignoring that. I uh, mean, if they were wasps, <laughs> if they were wasps, yeah. then, yeah. then fire burn, burn hose, them. hose yes, them yeah. off, <laughs> hose them off. I'm sure they provide some form of, you know, um, I'm sure they provide something. Oh, Oscar's just saying, I don't believe it. <laughs> 
Uh, Micah is saying it wouldn't be a problem for Nev because he'd only have to deal with one B. Oh, <laughs> oh sake. right, let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think that okay. wins. Yeah, that does win. That does yeah, win. Yeah, yeah. Well done, well Micah. Yeah, yeah, you, you've got a, a fake something or other on its way to you as we speak. Uh, yes. So, Matt, we had hello. a story similar to this last week on the show uh, about, uh, um, about training schools and stuff. So, okay. But this, this is quite sad news, actually, about a training school uh, here in the UK. Indeed, indeed. Uh, multiple sources on this one, including the BBC Pilot Web Daily Business Group, uh, flyer.co.uk. UK uh, and the headline is trainee pilots count cost of Tayside flight school collapse. Dundee based flight school Tayside Aviation Limited has ceased trading with 22 of the company's 25 employees now being made redundant. About 60 trainee pilots uh, paid fees in advance and now fear that they will not have their money returned. Some students are reported to have lost upwards of £50,000. Joint administrators Jeff Jacobs and Blair Nemo, who purchased the school in December 2021, had been advised by pre the previous owner of a significant liability for prepaid flying courses, which adversely affected the school's ability to generate income for new sales. Despite an investment of £1.5 million in addition to the purchase price, ultimately cash flow pressures proved insurmountable and the company was placed into administration on the 20th of April. April this year. The Scottish School was founded in 1968 and provided more than half a century of flight training across both PPL and commercial syllabuses. It also delivered the RAF Air Cadet Pilot Scheme, ACPS, over for over 30 years, a programme sponsored by the RAF as one of the amazing experiences offered by the Air Cadet Organisation and described by the training prover as training provider as the most important first step into flying solo however help may be at hand for affected trainees with various organizations making offers to assist stranded students however bristol ground school bgs and a modular pilot support community wings alliance have both stepped in to offer their support to students left stranded part way through their courses describing the situation as shocking chairman of wings alliance and founder of bgs announced uh, bristol's ground school offer to complete uh, sorry to complete ATPL theory training for any Tayside student student Tayside sorry students free of char uh, free of charge exclusive of the CAA exam fees affected students are also advised to contact info at wingsalliance.eu for further information goodwill based upset uh, Goodwood, sorry, Goodwood-based upset recovery training company Ultimate Fly have also announced mater materially discounted courses to affected student pilots who can mm. apply to info at ultimatehigh.co.uk to discuss their situation. I mean, this is desperately sad, isn't it? I mean, we were only literally talking, I think it was last week, how inordinately expensive it is to become a pilot in the first place. And, um, I mean, this is just awful, isn't it, really? I mean, Nev, you know, I mean, they can't do it for free, obviously, because these courses are expensive for a reason, I know. Um, but, I mean, surely these, these poor students are still going to have to sort of, you know, pay 
even more money for something that's already really expensive. Well, this is the trouble, isn't it? When you um, take, uh, you, you know, you give your money to a flight school, mm. you don't even begin to think that, you know, the the, the, the operating company may have problems. I mean, yeah. obviously you do some research on it beforehand, but of course you, you that money has already been paid. Yeah. So uh, trying to find more funds in order to continue your uh, learning uh, and the coursework is just horrific. Um, it, it's mm. just a, a given, isn't it? That you know, it's a bit like um, if you take a mortgage out on your house. You know, imagine something going wrong with the, the, the you know, the mortgage company, and they say, "Oh, you've got you've, you've got to pay again." Well, that would be ridiculous. But of course. In many cases, the amount of money that um, the flying schools take, I mean, they are, they are you know, large sums of money across um, multiple students. And if something goes wrong with the company or, or the formation of it or, or the way that the, the finances handle, that's absolutely horrific. So I feel very sorry for everybody involved. But, um, mm. yeah, it's uh, it's a salutary lesson isn't it you know just bearing in mind that uh, when you're paying your money over you need to do the best research you can and maybe these people did all of those things but things can still happen unfortunately but, and this is yeah. the thing isn't it? i mean where where do you go with this how do you how do you stop um you know as you say i mean companies by definition are very good at sort of you know even if directors and things are putting you know money into their own hands really unless it's obvious that they're not paying their bills if you like well, I, mean, I mean it's you know, very the, difficult the, to the, know there are very strict rules about being directors of companies mm. uh, and all the rest of it and you know there's there's no wriggle room for for, for things uh well if things do go wrong you know the, at the end of the day that the, the directors are, are liable for it potentially but uh um, let's it, see what happens with this. Whether the administrators can rescue mm. something from it, or at least try and find, you know, a, mm. a solution for the people that are undergoing training. And that's the bit that I, I fear, to be honest with you, Nev, is just like you know, the, is that uh, these people have paid all this money and they're not going to, you know, they're not going to get it back. Uh, that's the bit that sort of bothers me. Even a percentage is, yeah. you know, it's because you know I assume they're being wound up because they are insolvent. You know, so wh where is that money going to come from? Mm. Yes, exactly. I mean, obviously, you know, the the administrators can. Well, the whole point of it is to try and make it a going concern, mm. uh, rather than folding it completely. But um, they they just need to find a way of of, of doing it. But uh, um, yeah, it's uh, it's a big problem, isn't it? That's for sure. Indeed, indeed. Well, um, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed yeah. for everyone. We're looking at uh, Arabian, the Arabian travel market. Oh, Nev. Not something that I know very much about, so I'm glad <laughs> I'm being able to read it out uh, here from multiple sources, actually, including uh, Aero News Global, Breaking Travel News, uh, simplefly.flying.com and travelradar.aero. Uh, Dubai's annual Arabian travel market has introduced some wonderful new products over the years, and this year is no exception. Saudi, Etihad and Fly Dubai have all unveiled new seats that will be coming to aircraft in their respective fleets within the coming year. And I must say, uh, this, just reading through this is uh, pretty spectacular. Uh, starting with Saudi, the airline has opted to fit the Van solo suite from the Thompson Aero seating to its new uh, Airbus A321 XLR aircraft. The Vantage solo suite is a private space for a narrow body fitted with a privacy shield around the back and a door at the aisle. The seats can be reclined fully into a flatbed with others, uh, other features including an 18-inch IFE display, 
and generous storage space. In addition to the launch of the Vantage Solo Suite, Saudi has announced its new economy class seat, the Z400. This seat will feature a 13-inch screen and a generous seat recline. Moving on to Fly Dubai, uh, they have unveiled availed their latest business class product uh, at the ATM. Uh, the business suite will be introduced on a number of the carrier's newest aircraft in the last quarter of this year and will be deployed on selected flights. The business suite, de uh, designed exclusively for single-aisle aircraft, is the latest evolution in Fly Dubai's business class offering, which will see 10 suites introduced to a number of the carrier's newest uh, 737 aircraft. Uh, there will be an increased height at the back of the of the back shell and a sliding suite door will be fitted to offer some privacy to the flyers. If the flyer is looking for some entertainment, each of these suites uh, is fitted with a 17-inch 4K built-in touchscreen that passengers can use with their personal Ooh. headphones to connect via Bluetooth. And finally, moving on to Etihad, uh, the airline revealed the new interior for its Boeing 787 Dreamliners that will join the fleet in the third quarter of this year, adding to the 39 Dreamliners Etihad already operates. Uh, the business cabin features Etihad's unique stylish interior with a customised version of the Element seat manufactured by Collins. Uh, Etihad is the first airline in the world to introduce the Element seat on the Boeing 787. New seats will provide guests a comfortable and spacious environment with added privacy provided by a suite door. The height of the suite has been further increased from the A350's debut model, offering even greater privacy for guests. Each of the 32 business seats has direct aisle access with the cabin designed in a one-to-one configuration, offering comfort, convenience and privacy whether travelling individually or with companions. The seats recline to a fully lie-flat bed 78-inch in length and feature a 17.3-inch 4K TV screen, Bluetooth headphone pairing, multiple charging points and wireless charging, as well as plenty of storage. Uh, in the economy, the newest 787 will feature 271 seats, which are lighter in weight than the current fleet and therefore more fuel efficient. The seats boast exceptional comfort and an increased feeling of space created by the smart design and adjustments, including a similar, uh, slimmer profile armrest. Guests can also enjoy an extensive range of entertainment on the 13.3-inch 4K touchscreen monitor, including a convenient USB charging port. Well, 4K is the name of the game with this uh, resolution. Isn't it? It's also interesting to see that uh, uh, these other airlines are putting the uh, these suites into single aisle aircraft as well. So on the uh, 737 in the case of uh, Fly Dubai. So that's uh, that's quite interesting. But um, yeah, the amount of functionality and comfort that uh, you can now get in these uh, business suites is absolutely phenomenal um, mm. and there's obviously a definite um, desire on the part of the premium passengers for some extra privacy which is why they've been de designing these suites and BA have got this with their club suite as well mm. uh, on, on their longer haul aircraft so uh, yeah fascinating to see it absolutely brilliant mm. Cabin interiors have definitely come a long, on a long way, haven't they, Never yeah. Even over the last sort of two or three years yes. with, the, with the airlines. Yeah. Um, be interesting to see the video uh, later on of the BAC-111 cabin yeah. interior and how that matches up with the latest A350 with, with all of its uh, bells and whistles. The comparison will Bigger be... Bigger seats, thicker, thicker uh, foam, padding. Well, there is that, absolutely. Yeah. Anyway... Yeah. So we'll see. 
Yes. And uh, moving on to the next story. And uh, this is quite good. I like this one. When I found this one earlier in the week, it was quite interesting. Uh, it comes from the BBC.co.uk, so we know it's always going to be a good story. And a rare 1940s aircraft arrives in the UK for restoration. So a post-war passenger plane, one of only six of its kind remaining in the world has arrived in the UK where it will be restored and put on display. The 1946 Vickers Viking was brought uh, to Blackbush Airport in Hampshire from Austria following a £30,000 fundraising campaign to buy and transport it. Although the aircraft will not fly again, uh, Blackbush Heritage Trust hopes that one day will be able to taxi at least. It plans to make the restored aircraft the centrepiece for a new heritage centre. And Mark Griffiths, a funding tr or founding trustee, said, "If you have come down, if you have come down here in the 50s and 60s, there would have probably have been three or four Vikings on the ramp taking passengers all over Western Europe." He said, "We want to tell the story of the operators and the people who flew and worked on the aircraft." The former British European Airways or BEA airliner registration Golf Alpha Golf Romeo Whiskey, or named Vagabond, uh, received a traditional water salute as it was brought onto the airfield in a series of low loader trailers on Tuesday this week. Charity trustees and volunteers travelled to Bad Voslau Airfield south of Vienna last month to help dismantle the aircraft ready for transportation. It had previously been leased by a McDonald's restaurant in Vienna where it was used for children's parties. So volunteers also had to strip out air conditioning units and restaurant fittings before it could be brought back to the UK. Captain Mike Benison, who flew the aircraft nearly 60 years ago, said he was ecstatic. It's like people who fall in love with a car and I never thought he would see or near see it again, he said. Uh, built in Weybridge in Surrey, the Viking was based on the Wellington bomber and carried around 20 passengers. And although it has not moved several times, moved several times, uh, Romeo Whiskey has not flown since the late 1960s. Now I don't know whether you have any pictures of that, Matt, but um, there are pictures on the story. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm on the links of that. Got a bit of a glitch, but uh, but yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's. It's it's a proper. I mean, this is this is old school um, flying from from back in the day. I don't think it it. I think it was an upgrade from the wicker seat days, Nev, that we saw in the museum when we were over in Edinburgh. But uh, yeah, still great to see. It's like it's like a kind of like a try to describe what it looks like. It's kind of like a mini, a mini DC three. Yes. It, yes, exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, like a baby DC three. Yeah. But it's good, uh, good, it's good to see that it's going to be in the museum anyway, being looked after, and uh, and restored. It's always good, and it's uh, actually something that me and Nev were very impressed with as well, wasn't it? Nev over at the museum in Edinburgh is how well, you know, well maintained and restored all the aircraft were there. Yeah, we had a lot, long chat with Ian Brown, who's the curator at the museum up at Edinburgh, about you know aviation heritage and the protection of it. Uh, we had quite a wide-ranging ranging discussion, actually, regarding that. So um, we'll be bringing that to you in, in the coming weeks. But um, no, it's gr great to see this uh, this aircraft uh, um, available again, isn't it, for, for people to, to look at and to enjoy. Yes. Now, Matt, you've got the next story, and it's something I've never thought I'd read ever, although it's not going to be for a few more years yet. But uh, Airbus are finally getting on the freighter train. 
Uh, well, quite uh, apparently so. So um, yeah, from various uh, so from Flight Global this one, sorry. And the headline is Airbus A350 freighter entry into service uh, slips to 2026. Airbus has announced a slight delay to the entry into service of the A350 freighter now scheduled for 2026 instead of the previous end 2025 target. Despite this adjustment, Airbus maintains its industrial targets for other programs including the uh, A321 XLR, the A320 Neo family jets, the A220, A330 and A350 variants as well. The delay in the A350 freighter service entry is attributed to overall program execution rather than any specific supplier issue. Airbus chief executive uh, Gualum Fori emphasized point. <laughs> I, I have uh, <laughs> emphasized that the shift is a matter of a few months and does not constitute a baselining of the schedule. Recently, the first components for the freighter were produced at the Airbus Atlantic plant in Nantes. Airbus continues. Uh, sorry, what was it? Sorry, I've said it wrong apparently. Uh, I say that again, John. Nantes. Okay, apologies. Uh, <laughs> Airbus continues to progress in its other projects with the uh, A321XLR's long-range single-aisle project expected to enter service into the second quarter of 2024. The company is ramping up A320 Neo family jet production, targeting a monthly rate of 65 aircraft by the end of 2023 and 75 aircraft per month in 2026, supported by a second A320 Neo final assembly line at its Chinese plant in Tianjin. Uh, additionally, Air Air Airbus uh, aims for monthly uh, production rates of 14 A220, uh, A220s by, mid by the mid-decade, 4 A330s in 2024, and 9 A350s by the end of 2025. Do you know what? I've got to say, right, Nev, what do you reckon? The, the 777 right, has been a fantastic freighter for Boeing made them a fortune as has the 76 to be fair and the freight conversions airbus are now going to step in with the 350 which is a similar size to the dreamliner i suppose or the triple seven in a sense but what do you think the market has already got the aircraft well, it needs do we do we need a yeah but don't forget it's operating costs is the name of the game mm. fuel efficient engines mm. Uh, which the seven six certainly did not have triple uh, seven slightly better in terms of fuel economy I would have thought but the a three fifty I would imagine is very fuel efficient so uh, mm. they're trying to uh, reduce uh, reduce fuel costs I would imagine and maintenance costs as well um, but they are late to the party absolutely yeah. yeah so they've obviously identified this market um and you know the very large operators you know the dhls ups's and amazons and all the rest of them um you know will be shipping things around the world for, for many years to come yet so uh we they need to find uh, less expensive ways of doing it i would imagine and this is a, a a good way of doing it but it's interesting that uh yeah they they've not they were not one of the first to offer you know freighter aircraft with with this sort of specification no so, yeah and stick with you nev on the next story 
Yes, it's on the business traveller USA.com. Uh, interesting story this Greek Venezuelan entrepreneur and aviation enthusiast, uh, Stephen Kaluthros, uh, built a world class collection of 3,500 aeroplane models and is now opening the SKS Flight Museum in Panama. Uh, he's devoted his life to collecting uh, aeroplane models, but as, also as a private pilot, he's uh, built his passion for these small-scale small replicas into a world-class collection, now opening uh, to the public. And uh, as a university student pursuing calculus and advanced engineering, he used his free time to visit the hangars of his country's formal, former national carrier, Viasa. There, through an internship, he was granted access to maintenance rooms and even the jump seat of planes as big as the DC-10 on journeys to Europe. Well, he started his collection when his mother uh, brought him two British Airways models, a 737-200 and a 747. What a fantastic choice. Painted in the airline's iconic Negus livery, followed by a 747 in Olympic Airways colours, uh, respectively gifted by his uncle. Uh, he used to be president of the airline, uh, Kaluthros told Business Traveller during an exclusive pre-opening visit to his museum. Since then, I knew that collecting planes would be an important part of my life, and here we are today, 3,500 models later. Well, as an avid traveller, he's been on some of the world's most memorable trips, including Singapore Airlines' longest flight to New York, and he's visited 103 countries. I was always booking round-the-world tickets, he says. On every trip, I hunted for that model that I knew I was missing. My collection grew bigger, and my ambition never ceased. In 2003, he was cataloguing his boxed airplane models. The idea of opening a museum came to light. And I had, some, uh, I had to do something with them, he said. I had so many all in pristine condition, it would have been a shame to just keep them stored. His commitment grew after chatting with other world-class model collectors, most of whom had their planes either stored or displayed in ghastly conditions, and it pushed him to do the exact opposite, to exhibit them in the best possible way. Well, that's when he devised plans to create a museum based in his basement in Caracas in Venezuela. In Venezuela, sorry. But due to the growing security and financial instability in the country, he moved to Panama City with his wife and children, putting his museum dream on hold while seeking shelter in a country that then welcomed him with open arms. Uh, I brought my family and my dreams of opening a museum to Panama, he says. We designed a building shaped like an aeroplane wing with plenty of space for all my planes. We hired a construction company and secured our funds in a, pa a Panamanian bank. But then the construction company folded and we lost everything. At the time, he felt the efforts behind his 45-year collecting spree have been futile. I pitched uh, donating my collecting, uh, collection to Panama City Airport, but that idea never materialised. Well, with his collection still stuck in Caracas, he gave it one last shot. After meeting uh, with Roger Jarman, who's the owner of Atlantic Models in Florida, he agreed to purchase several more airplane models, noses and tails. But the most critical item he was after was a gigantic one-third scale model of an Embryo E190, the crown and centrepiece of my collection, he says. 
Uh, the model was intended for the Brazilian low-cost carrier Azul, but uh, David Nealman, uh, the airline's founder, along with JetBlue and Breeze Airways, was the mastermind behind creating these large-scale models, ordering three from Atlantic for his three airlines. But thanks to Jarman, uh, the last plane landed in Kaluthros's uh, Kul basement. Uh, after such an effort, I had a uh, had a personal kick to it, he said. It needed to be mine. Well, uh, now opening to the public, the 4,300-square-foot basement boasts a collection of these 3,500 models showcased in an industrial setting with grey cement walls and superb lighting, impeccably presented by aircraft type. Welcoming guests is a column wrapped with glass shelves that display the collector's most precious pieces. Uh, even though this project was arduous and expensive, he says, uh, he will not seek to monetize it. All I care about is to have my legacy displayed for generations to come. I want my son to understand my passion and values and carry on this beautiful project that we as a family embarked on a long time ago. Uh, the FSKS Museum will be open for guided visits. Uh, in the autumn of this year and uh, the founder is organizing a debut event with the presence of aviation personalities from across the industry well i'm just waiting for my uh, invitation obviously <laughs> got lost in the post it's a um, it's a fascinating what a, what a fantastic story what, they're, what commitment How they're great that? models as well aren't they yeah yeah, they really are quite very extremely detailed. It's always very sad when you get something like that, isn't it? You sort of got this big dream, and then it's a bit like the pilot situation we were talking about earlier, isn't it? And then something goes wrong, and the constructor sort of collapses, and then suddenly your dream is, you know, out the window yeah, again, isn't it? Not, notwithstanding all of all of those setbacks he had, um, he was able Ooh. to. Uh, to, to finally, you know, realise his dream. But absolutely yeah. phenomenal uh, project. Um, yeah, absolutely. And such a nice legacy as well to, you know, to be able to hand down to your, uh, uh, you know, you, you need the remainder of your, your family as well. So, indeed, indeed. It's, but that's what, I, that's what I hope to do with all these pieces of aircraft behind well, me. Build here, one, hope. yeah. Well, no, just, just hand them down to... Uh, Right. Okay. I've got various a, members of the family. I've got really, uh, it's uh, I've got a really nasty uh, feeling that you're uh, you that, that they're going to be throwing them away the second you're not <laughs> you're not you're not there anymore. Don't, and, and, that's exactly what Gemma says. Oh, to absolutely, hundred percent. Oh, Gemma will dear. do that. So, if anybody has any pictures of their own models at home, send in the pictures uh, this week, and we'll show them on next week's show as a kind of a virtual museum for oh, all of our wonderful viewers and listeners. Uh, obviously, that only work on the on the uh, video version of course but uh, yeah you can send them in via the whatsapp number it's plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six that's plus four four two two four let me pop it up on screen. That'll be a bit, a little better. There it is. Plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six. Plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six. And send in your uh, pictures, and we'll do a little virtual museum uh, when we come back uh, next time round, uh, which I won't be here for. Speaking of pictures, we've got a lovely uh, Armando, as you know, has had to abandon us uh, to go and do something called. I mean. He says it's work. 
I, I mean, it's just I, so not work. I mean, it's not really work, is it? So this is literally hot. This oh, is literally no. hot off the presses. Here we go. There is uh, Armando uh, flight checks and because he's literally like a stone's throw away from from his air, from the airport he flies from now. So uh, there you go. Literally uh, pre-flight checks all done. APU fired up. Literally ready to rock. Um, so there you go. Look, oh, he has no idea how cool he is, does he? Oh dear, never mind. Anyway, Nev, we have something very, very special coming up next, which I can't wait to share with everyone. Yes, well, we were very lucky uh, last, was it last week, uh, Carlos, we were there, or was it? Uh, yeah, I mean, um, last week, yeah. Last Wednesday. Because exactly yeah. it, it was on <laughs> Wednesday the 26th of April. Uh, so Carlos and I went up to the uh, Museum of Flight at East Fortune, which is just to the uh, south and east of Edinburgh. And uh, Paul Mack, who is the visitor experience manager there, very kindly assisted us with our filming. And all of the staff there were absolutely superb. They could not have done enough for us. Uh, we did a great interview with Ian Brown, who's the curator uh, there at the museum. Absolutely fantastic. Fascinating conversation with Ian. Uh, both Carlos and I had the chance to speak to him. So we'll be running those um, a bit later on in, in the, this month and, and next month because we've got quite a lot of content. So we're going to try and uh, do at least one clip of, of something uh, from the museum in, in the coming weeks and months. But yeah, what a fascinating day out. Now, we've got to bear in mind that uh, although uh, there is a very large hangar there uh, with uh, one of the Concords, uh, Alpha Alpha, in there, there is a very large uh, outdoor space featuring some absolute classic aircraft. Um, and one of those aircraft is the BAC-111. Now, the last time I saw it, uh, which was 2015 there, uh, it was looking in reasonable shape on the outside, but unfortunately the, the weather has taken its toll a little bit, but, you know, there's nothing they can do about it. These are outdoor exhibits. But let's go over to East Fortune now and uh, see what Carlos has been up to on the BAC 111. So it's not very often that me and Nev have our work patterns line up, but it just so happens that this week me and Nev have managed to end up in the same place at the same time with our respective jobs. And uh, you join us here at the National Museum of Flight up just outside Edinburgh. And uh, me and Nev have got here for the or come here for the day to, to have a look round and see what's going on. You're standing right here next to a glorious BAC 111. And uh, Nev's very proud of this one because it's obviously with the BA logo. And as we know, BA is Nev through and through. He flew up this morning actually on a BA flight on an A320 from Heathrow. So Nev's literally only just been on the ground for a few hours now, but uh, he's behind the camera. But we're going to have a look on board. We're going to see what's going on on board the BAC 111. But it's a lovely day, blue sky, a uh, bit of cloud. It's a bit chilly, as you can probably tell. Me and Nev are both wearing a coat, but uh, an easterly wind apparently here today. But it's uh, a glorious so far. We've been really well. Uh, uh, looked after by the team here at the museum and we've got loads to see loads to do today we're going to be checking out the concord later on uh, we're going to be chatting with the uh, museum curator ian later right underneath the nose of the concord also just across from where i'm standing here now we've got the comet and also there's a vulcan avro vulcan over there as well so we're going to be uh, having a look at that as well close up so i think it's uh, we're going to go on board the bac 111 i think nev let's go on board the BAC 111. Wow, this brings back some memories for me as a child flying 
on these from Gatwick with British uh, Island Airways, BIA, and uh, being back on board the BAC-111, it's, it's an experience. And the smell, the minute we walked on, me and Nev, that's, that distinctive um, aircraft smell that you get when you walk on board, and uh, this is actually open both ends. We've got actually got a rear air stairs here, which... Uh, is something quite uh, quite good that you sort of brings back memories from the uh, that chap. Who was that chap, Nev, who uh, done the escape from the uh, seven? Was it the seven two seven? Wasn't it back in the day with the money? I forget the name the name now. It escapes my memory. But um, we'll go and look at the seats in a moment. But if we uh, have a look at the seat, the, the actual the legs or the actual um, space between your knees and the seats in front was slightly different back in the days when this aircraft was flying with British Airways. I'm just near the. Uh, rear galley area here at the moment and uh, we've got uh, well we've got a toilet at the back here which is always handy galley service area here there's also one at the front as well but perhaps if we can uh, if we can walk back slightly Nev we'll have a look at uh, the actual seating arrangements here on board the aircraft uh, in a two island three or two three layout here on board as all the BAC 111s were, and I have to say, the space between the seats here, uh, you'll get to see on camera, I expect, is, uh, is quite a bit more than you get on a normal uh, low-cost carrier, which we shan't mention on board the aircraft, but still loads of room, really good. The usual uh, overhead bins that you find on board, uh, but a, a really well-preserved aircraft as well on side. It's been quite, quite well looked after. Slightly weathered on the outside, but still showing the BA logo as it should do. We're going to take a walk up to the, the business end of the aircraft. We uh, make sure Nev doesn't fall over any uh, seats here. But it's a great nostalgic look at what flying was like back in uh, the early 80s. Overwing exit seats just here now. Stacks of legroom here for those sitting here uh, over the overwing exits. Two overwing exits on the aircraft. And we're just at aisle or seat row 11 here, moving our way forward through the aircraft. No IFE, as we could probably uh, tell on the aircraft of this age, so no seat back screens on here. Uh, but the usual uh, one thing we notice here is the ashtrays. Remember these from back in the day when, when you're allowed to smoke on board aircraft? And the recline function, which you obviously don't get on, on uh, most aircraft nowadays, something which you had on here. But seat pitch, I mean, we're talking a good measurable uh, seat pitch on here and plenty of space for you to sit here on board the aircraft. But still wearing the same seat coverings as it had when it left uh, BA many years ago. We're going to take a look on the flight deck now. For those of you who have uh, perhaps never seen the flight deck on the BAC-111, we'll uh, ask Nev to have a quick look round on the flight deck here and uh, we'll have a look at that right now. So the aircraft me and Nev are currently on uh, was Golf Alpha Victor Mike Oscar. Uh, the BAC was delivered to British European Airways on the 27th of November 1968. On the 1st of April 1974 ownership moved to BA on the formation of the airline and the 111 aircraft were given names of local authorities and Golf Alpha Victor Mike Oscar was named Lothian Region. So Mike Oscar was withdrawn from use in December 1992 and in March 93 was transferred to the BA collection at RAF Museum Cosford 
for preservation. Uh, in 2006, British Airways donated the aircraft uh, to National Museums of Scotland, and the aircraft was dismantled and moved by road and to uh, resemble its new home here and reassembled on site at uh, the museum where me and Nev currently are here. Powered by the Rolls-Royce Spey engines uh, with the the formidable hush kits, as we'll see on the rear of the engines from back in the day. Because as we all know, these engines were not renowned for their quietness at all. But uh, no doubt a great aircraft to fly on. I have many, many good memories of flying on the 111 uh, as a child uh, onto uh, to destinations such as Tunisia, I can remember. And I'm actually, uh, where I'm standing now, uh, is right next to seat 1A. So we'll get a shot here for those of you who are members of the show will know. Um, unfortunately, though, seat 1A seems to have a, a slight issue with a window missing. But um, nevertheless, Nev would be sitting here, plenty of room to, uh, to put his uh, magazine of choice whilst he's flying. And uh, yeah, it's a it's great overall aircraft. Really impressed with this. Really impressed. But uh, thanks again to the team here at the uh, museum for allowing us on board this BAC 111. <laughs> I'm very upset uh, be about the window being missing there, Nev. I've got to yes. be honest. Yes, you'd be, you'd be disappointing. I think. I think the the, the two takeaways from that uh, were seat thickness yeah back thickness especially and the smell extremely distinctive oh it's not even possible to properly describe it i don't think <laughs> old commercial airliner musk yeah yeah <laughs> wow. maybe they could bottle it and make it into some sort of 1970s aftershave oh perhaps. dear <laughs> I'm, you're I'm not, not selling it. You're not selling it. Not selling yeah. it. Uh, anyway, sad news. We've got to say goodnight to our youngest listener, by the way. So, a very Oscar. Oscar. Uh, yes, it is time for bed now. It's twenty past eight. Way too late for it. Oh, boo! Yeah, I know, I know. But uh, you know, mustn't be tired and grumpy tomorrow. Big day tomorrow here in the UK, of course, because we've got something called a coronation going on. I don't know if anybody's missed that. Yeah. What? Sat what chicken sandwich? <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, my favourite kind. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, okay, what's next then? Yeah, so next up on the show, we've got a very special segment indeed sent in by one of our listeners. And uh, it's something I've never tried before. And I think if I did try RC flying, it would probably end up costing me an absolute fortune, something I'd probably need insurance for because <laughs> I'd end up plowing aircraft. And honestly, I have nothing but respect for people who fly RC aircraft. Mm. I really do. But James Graves Brown has sent us in a fantastic. Uh, little piece here to play out the show. We've got uh, two pe or two parts of this. Uh, this is part one. Uh, so we're going to have a little little listen to what it's all about when you're flying remote-controlled aircraft. Hello and greetings to everybody in PTUK land, hosts and community alike. This is James Graves Brown coming live in Rio Rancho, New Mexico, and I've got a special guest today here to talk to us about aviation and RC flying. Welcome, Scott Derigny. Hey, James, how you doing? Did I say it right? Yep. <laughs> good, good. Good, good, good. Okay. Yeah, then everything's good. All right, Scott, so I want to start with a little introductory section here. Let's let's find out a little bit about you. How did you get started in aviation? Well, I got started in aviation thanks to my dad. Uh, my dad 
worked at uh, McDonnell Douglas and then Boeing after that merger uh, in St. Louis, which is where I grew up, working on fighter jets. Uh, so in my house growing up, there was a bunch of posters of different uh, fighters and airplanes and models and everything. And uh, on top of that, we would uh, go flying in general aviation airplanes. Uh, my dad taught me how to fly. Um, we'd also fly in a small helicopter. Uh, he, he got his helicopter rating for fun as well as his flight instructor. Uh, so that was my big influence for uh, learning how to fly and, and being involved in aviation. That's too cool. And I, just for the community to know, this is our round two. I, I kind of screwed up our first interview this morning. So uh, I know some some stuff that you guys don't know, but we'll find out. And that's why I got a little smirk when, when he said about the, the small helicopter. Um, something I didn't ask you earlier, and I'm truly curious, what did your dad do on the jets that he worked on? His title was flight inspector. He's a mechanic is what my dad does. Uh, so okay. he's an airframe power plant awesome. mechanic. But uh, his role was quality assurance. So one of the mechanics would put a part together, say the ejection seat, and he would decide whether it was airworthy or not. Oh, awesome. That's too so cool. So that was his role. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, how long have you been flying for? I got my private pilot when I, in 2006. Uh, so that's about 17 years now. Uh, of course, I've got several hours of stick time prior to all that uh, since I was a little kid. But uh, it was called 17 years. Awesome. And how many of those professionally? Uh, coming up on 12 now. I started uh, in, uh, 2011. Perfect, perfect. Okay, what's your current position? I'm a uh, Boeing 737 first officer at one of the uh, three major U.S. airlines. Okay, and just for the community's sake, well, most of you will know, but for my sake, um, Scott's in Dallas-based, so we're going to call his airline Acme Silver. Okay. Okay. Um, can you tell me about your career path from start to, to present? Sure. Um, so my first flying job I got when I was 19 years old, and uh, that was a banner tow pilot. I uh, worked in Myrtle Beach, and that was just one summer between freshman and sophomore year of college. A lot of fun. Uh, kind of dangerous, but still a lot of fun. So cool. Though. Uh yeah. Uh, <laughs> after that, I um, got my CFI, my Certified Flight Instructor Certificate, and uh, I instructed for my university at the University of Central Missouri, and uh, did that for about two years or so until I graduated. <clears throat> and then I, uh, I graduated and went to the regional airlines, uh, and fr from there I became a ATR-72 first officer. And I flew that airplane for not quite a year, about 254 hours worth. Uh, then after that, I switched to the Embraer 145, and I flew that for several years. I was first officer for about six and a half years, and then I upgraded to captain. Oh, cool. And shortly after that, I became a Czech airman, or, or a Czech pilot, they call them nowadays. Um, and I was, so I was, uh, I think I flew that airplane for about 3,200 hours or so. Um, oh, yeah. And I, until I got my job with the major airline, and uh, now I'm a Boeing 737 first officer, and I've flown that airplane for about 1,550 hours or so now. Very, very cool. 
so that's how I got where I'm at. Awesome. Um, without being too obvious, what regional did you fly for? It's uh, one of the wholly owned regionals, uh, which there's only a couple of those to pick from. Okay. Uh, yeah. That's what you get. Associated <laughs> with my major airlines. So. Oh, okay, cool. Awesome. So it, yeah. wasn't, it wasn't too far of a leap away from home. Exactly. Good, good. All right. Uh, which version of the 737 have you flown and do you currently fly? Well, uh, my airline's got two. They've got the 800 NG and they also have the, uh, the Max 8. And uh, that's, uh, we only have 8-800s or Max 8s. Awesome. And which one's your both favorite? The same, I'm sorry. Uh, they're both of the same seating uh, capacity. So oh, okay. it makes it easy to plan for the airline, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, my favorite one, yeah. I'd say the Max, um, just because it's got that new airplane feel, smell, control feel, everything. Uh, it's it's a really nice ride. It's got the same screens as the 787. It's pretty nice. Oh, you know, earlier in our interview, I thought you said it's the same screens as the earlier 737s, and I was kind of thrown off by that. No, no, no. 787. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense now. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah. On that note, did, did – uh, when they recertified the aircraft, did you have any nervousness about its functionality or were you pretty confident that they, they had corrected it properly? Uh, yeah, I was pretty confident in the fix that they had uh, for it. They, of course, had a differences school for us where we came in. We had a CBT, uh, computer-based training, about the fix and okay. what the MCAS was, for example, and how to recognize when it uh, fires, and also we had a simulator session uh, covering all those same topics. So we got very specific training on all that, and it it made me feel very comfortable uh, when I finally got to fly the airplane. Good. That's perfect. Um, my opinion, and, and it may not be the popular opinion, but I feel like because during the time of those crashes, we had several airlines flying that jet in the U.S. and not really too many issues or, you know, close calls or anything. And I feel like, and it, I may be wrong here, but I kind of feel like it's like the U.S. has higher training standards or, or more training maybe. And that led to our pilots being more capable in uh, stressful situations maybe, maybe higher decision-making skills i don't know that's just my opinion <laughs> well you know of course you're going to ask my opinion on on that we're we're all going to say oh of course we're better but uh i don't uh, i'm not informed enough on the topic to really comment uh that's fair you know uh, on that so you know, i don't want to i don't want to disparage my uh you know fellow pilots in other countries that's fair and i feel like uh, maybe I'm probably wrong on that. I, I hope that I'm probably wrong on that. I, I'm confident getting on any commercial airliner, so I better be wrong on that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, um, let's move on. Uh, are you type rated on other aircraft? Yep. Uh, ATR-72 when I was new hire uh, at the regional, then the Embraer 145. Uh, and in the ATR training course, uh, we got the ATR-42 type rating as well. Uh, cool. So, two two of those Embraer 145 plus the Boeing 737. So total of four for now. Awesome for now, with plans for the yeah. future for more. Of course, yeah. <laughs> good man, good man. Um, if you could fly any jet, what would you choose? 
Yeah, uh, anything. I'd probably pick an F-18. Uh, that's my favorite airplane of all time. And if uh, we're talking airliners, I'd really like to fly the 787. I, that would be pretty cool. Now, do you find any difference in the newer uh, versions of 787 from the older ones? I've heard that a lot of pilots don't like the older uh, 787s versus the 900. Uh, you know, I haven't really talked to many 787 uh, pilots about the difference between the Dash 8 and the Dash 9, so I couldn't say. Okay, fair enough. How, why did you choose your current airline? Well, uh, at the time when I was picking regional airlines, uh, this was 2011, so it was right after that 2008 recession. So not, not all the regionals were hiring. Uh, some of them required higher minimums than what I currently had. So I had a friend go to this airline that I ended up choosing um, and he kind of told me about it and I liked the idea that it was a wholly owned regional, uh, turned out well for me. And, uh, you know, I was afforded, uh, fl the flow through. So, uh, that was a direct career path to the major airline. Beautiful. So it really worked out well for me. Good. And I assume though, it, you did take a hit on your, uh, seniority, your rank. Yeah. Yeah. I got up to one of the top percentage pilots at my regional and then uh when you switch airlines you start over from the very bottom and in my case it was uh a 15,000 pilot long list that I was at the bottom of that so. is such a long <laughs> list <laughs> yes and uh you, you did say something in our previous discussion about uh the shortage of pilots now yes. so you're you're moving up <laughs> unfortunately <laughs> i'm i'm moving up quite a bit uh quite quickly thanks to the uh, pilot shortage because a lot of pilots are retiring. I think we have about 100 pilots a month retiring, that which is, is so an insane nice. number. It it's is. Creating lots of training, creating lots of movement seniority-wise. So uh, that's generally good for everyone. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, where do you generally fly and what's your schedule look like? Uh, my schedule typically looks like a, like a three-on, two-off, three-on, three-off. Um, that's what I have this month and, and hoping for next month too. Okay. Um, more typical, I had uh, four day trips where I do four days on, three days off. Uh, so that's kind of the, the cadence that we typically do. Um, in terms of destinations, it just depends on the trip. Some trips are purely domestic trips. Um, my status is also international, meaning uh, we'll go down south all the way down to Central America. We'll go to Northern South America. Occasionally we'll, we'll go to the Caribbean if we're lucky. Uh, lots of Mexico, Canada. Uh, and yeah, uh, that's sometimes it's mixed. Sometimes you'll, you'll do south of the border for three days and then you'll have to pack your coat because on the last day you'll be up north somewhere where it's oh, really man. cold. <laughs> <laughs> so I have two additional questions off of that one that I didn't ask you earlier, but I'm really curious um have you ever flown into the princess jean Air airport uh god i can't remember what island it's saint on, martin saint martin did you have you ever flown into that yes and we jet blasted the beachgoers just oh like that's so close cool. to yeah, i want to do it, it was... so bad <laughs> i want to go there yeah it um, was a lot of fun that's awesome and uh my second question off of that was in South America, I know there's a lot of dangerous airports that require special training to fly into. Do you fly any of those? Yep. Um, 
my company has special qualifications called Latin Terrain. And we get special training from a Czech pilot or Czech airman uh, just to go to these places. Uh, there's uh, a handful of them. One of the more dangerous ones we go to is actually in Central America, Guatemala City. And that's due to the, uh, the terrain around, the runway, lots of different factors to consider when you go to these dangerous uh, terrain airports. Uh, but they sure are beautiful to fly into. And, oh, I bet. Uh, and it makes it for a more exciting time when you're not worried about the all the threats that could reach up and get you. That's that's cool, man. That's that's awesome. All right, so let's get into your hobby, the RC aircraft, the meat and potatoes of why we're here. Um, all right. Tell me what got you into RC flying. Well, similar story to full scale. Uh, it was my thanks to my dad. Uh, it was one activity that we used to do together when I was uh, a younger. So I think I was about 11 years old when we got into it. And uh, we had, my dad had uh, one of his retired buddies from McDonnell Douglas teach us how to do it. And this was in like the late 90s, early 2000s when electric airplanes were just starting to come around. Uh, so we had an electric trainer uh, that was, uh, you know, well-loved. Awesome. That's really cool. Yeah. Uh, and how long have you been flying those for? Since then, so uh, I'm, I was 11 then, so 34 now, so 20 plus years with a little break in between. Uh, pretty typical story, actually. If you ever listen to any other RC related podcasts, when they interview somebody, they'll tell the same story. You go to college, you take a break, you start your family, start your career. No time to really participate in the hobby. Uh, but once my life settled down, I was able to get back into it about six years ago. Okay. Well, you're a seasoned vet, it sounds like. <laughs> uh, how many do you own, and what types are they? I currently have, well, I had nine fixed-wing airplanes. Now I have eight. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, this past Tuesday, I crashed my favorite airplane. Uh, that's another story. Uh, so I've got uh, three drones, which are... Racing drones, uh, that's the other part of the hobby I like to participate in. And, of course, one RC car. What kind of car? Uh, it's just a Horizon Hobby. Uh, oh, I think okay. it's called a Centon. Uh, just like a little sand buggy. You know, oh, cool. Pretty fun. Yeah. It can go 50 miles an hour out of the box, so it's pretty cool. Holy crap. <laughs> yeah. is, that, is that a fuel-driven or is that a electric? Electric, yeah. Oh, okay. That's pretty awesome for an electric car. No kidding, yeah. Uh, what's your favorite aircraft to fly that you own? Well, it was the F-18 that I crashed on <laughs> oh, Tuesday. Uh, it was uh, an electric airplane that I had converted to turbine power. And uh, I was sad to see it go, but that just provides me the opportunity to get a new airplane. There so, you go. Not complaining about that. Uh, the So my current favorite now, I would have to say, is my... Uh, seventh scale f-16 turbine powered it's pretty cool yeah are those your only two turbine powered correct yeah i have okay. two turbines and the rest are all electric awesome um aside from the obvious size and atc and co-pilots and etc what is the similarities and differences between rc jet flying and full-scale jet flying so similarities um you've got physics lift, weight, thrust, and drag, uh, center of gravity, all those considerations are the same 
no matter your scale. Uh, so once you understand that, you're good for uh, full scale or RC. Uh, okay. Also, safety culture is very important to uh, full scale as well as RC flying because uh, airplanes, no matter their size, will hurt you if you let them. So you need to uh, take care uh, with that. The uh, other thing I would say is decision making. Uh, that's kind of a similar uh, idea and uh, method that we use. Uh, or that I would use at least. And of course, fun. They're both fun. So that's similarities for you. Uh, differences, the cost, the accessibility, and uh, less regulations to comply with with RC, which increases the amount of fun, I, I would say. <laughs> that makes um, sense. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, RCs are, are obviously cheaper and more accessible for people. So yeah. uh, you can't afford to fly full scale. You can afford to fly RC. Yeah, you just don't get the same view. That's all. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, there's ways around that, of course. You know, you could do FPV flying. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, speaking of regulation, is there any kind of licensing or certificate you need to be flying those? Um, I wouldn't call it a, a license or certificate, but uh, in order to go fly at the at the club places that I uh, that I go to. You need to have uh, that most of them require to have an AMA membership uh, membership to the Academy of Model Aeronautics. And that, you know, gives you access to the model airplane community. It gives you uh, an insurance policy. And uh, so it's it's kind of a nice thing to have lots of information to access. Uh, the other thing you need to do, which is actually sponsored by the AMA, is the trust test. And I can't tell you what that stands for, but it's a relatively new thing. It's just a written test to uh, check your safety knowledge. Remember I mentioned safety culture is kind of important. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's not a test you need to study weeks and weeks and weeks for. So you just, you go and take it, it's open book and, and you just uh, learn safety. And that's the point of that. Um, the only I don't know how you would even classify it. It's called a turbine waiver. So in order to fly turbine airplanes, you need to uh, have a turbine waiver, which is sponsored by the AMA. And it's kind of a community learning thing. So you find a, an experienced turbine pilot that can observe you fly your airplane, check your setup, check your safety knowledge and things like that, and, and fill in any gaps in knowledge that you might have. And you have to do that with two different people before you earn your turbine waiver. Uh, okay. So that's kind of how the community polices itself for safety. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, is there any special designated airspace that you guys fly in, or can you just take your plane out wherever you feel like it and put her up in the air? Well, it's become more complicated recently due, due to uh, federal regulations, the remote ID uh, rule that's come into effect. So, you can go fly as long as you have a remote broadcast module. To my understanding, I, you know, don't check me on this, but um, you need to have a remote ID broadcast module to fly just anywhere unless you go to a pre-designated spot uh, called a FRIA, which all these clubs that I belong to and, and with throughout the country are becoming FRIAs, which is a 
uh, a zone where you can fly a model or a drone as they call them. They're all drones okay. uh, to, to, uh, to fly without the broadcast module. So that I, I just mitigate that by going to the club field because well, number one, there's not that many people around. There's not any property to damage or people to hurt. Uh, so it's kind of, um, you know, a safety thing for me too. But you could go to the park and, and fly as long as you comply with those federal federal rules. That's awesome. Um, is there any altitudes that you're not to exceed? Yes. Uh, so the safety program of the AMA says don't go higher than 400 feet. And that's typically the rule at every club that I've ever been to. I know that there's other clubs that have exceptions or exemptions to go higher. Uh, those are like soaring clubs and stuff where the you know, they would want more altitude than 400 feet. Yeah. But I've never been to one of those. Most most places I've been to is 400 feet. And while you're flying, how do you know what altitude you're at and how do you maintain that altitude? <laughs> Eyeballs, uh, <laughs> for the most part. Um, so that's, you just judge it by your eyes. But there's also telemetry that you can install on your airplane. And it'll tell you, you'll tell your transmitter, your controller, what altitude you're at. Um, I, on my glider, I have that. Uh, it tells you me vertical speed and altitude. But on a glider, it's nice and slow. I have time to look down at the transmitter and see, oh, this is my altitude. But with the jets, they're way too fast and uh, a handful. So you, even if I had that telemetry, I wouldn't be able to look at it. Interesting. And on the note of fast, what what's your fastest one? And what do you uh, approximate its top speed is? Oh, I haven't clocked my airplane, but it's going to be my turbine-powered F-16, and it probably could hit 200 knots if if I really tried. That's nuts. I'll um, have to let you know after I get a GPS in it or something. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> I definitely want to know. Wow. Wow. I love that. I, I'd never really thought about how... Um... I mean, I've got, as I say, I'm very lucky. I've got a lovely little drone um, that I don't spend anywhere near as much time flying as I really, really Yeah, but you just to. go up and down with that. Uh, what? I, I, I always thought, not that I've, I've had much experience with a drone, obviously, unlike yourself, but I always thought that they're probably a lot easier to control than, than a, an aircraft. Oh, a like a million aircraft. percent. That's why I'm, mm. I'm actually capable of flying it, frankly. Um, but, yeah, it's... Um, I mean, and also, they don't just go up and down, Carlos. You can actually fly them. Oh, no, no, I know. I know. <laughs> you can but it's, it. it's, it's just the whole... Yeah, but with the other thing as well is that there aren't many... I don't think there are many RC aircraft that have cameras, like front-facing front cameras, whereas obviously with a, with a, a drone or um, a UAV, you've obviously got that camera so you can watch while you're controlling it. You can watch where you're flying in, in regards to the space yeah. you're in. Yeah, although, the, yeah, I suppose that it, that it is quite nice. I mean, you could take some amazing photos and stuff using a drone, um, which would be good. But um, but thanks, yeah. for, thanks to James for that. Well done. And uh, 
Matt, you were coming, commenting on uh, the setup that James had there in his home yeah, studio. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I mean, the, the nerd <laughs> of me is very excited, A, about the little roadcaster uh, desk, that, the, the mixer desk that he got, and uh, and the microphone, and the, the, the gorgeous-looking guitar on the wall, and all that kind of thing. I need to know more about what sort of things you're you're playing because that's just amazing love it very good love it yeah, anyway good. thank you thank you very much james thanks james great video part two to come next week of course so next up on the show it's uh, obviously a, a big weekend here in the uk obviously i think most people know what's uh, going on here in the uk i know matt does because he's got lots of preparation to do uh but for those who uh, may not know it uh, matt what what is that thing that's going on this weekend Something called a coronation, I think. Yeah, yeah. Some some guy called Charles is makes get, me feel get, hungry. I think he's getting a new hat. I think that's what's happening, uh, if I recall correctly. A new hat. Yeah, a new hat. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Yeah, Very good. yeah. Giving it to giving it to him in a big church somewhere. Yeah. So we've got a little piece Probably here London. that's uh, in in London. Yeah. yeah. Don't don't. We, I, do you know what I was watching the news this morning? There was there's people camping there last night. Oh and yeah, tonight. yeah, yeah. Yeah, camping absolutely. oh mate if it weren't for the fact I had so much on I would absolutely be there myself I love it I can't get enough of it I love it camping in central London god if I, if yeah. I park my, park oh, my, my oh, van or no. car there it cost me a fortune no, no I love it I love all the pomp the one thing we do brilliantly here and I know people you know I get that lots of people don't like it but I love it because I just love all the pomp and circumstance and the and you know the it's it's just I'm just so proud of our history and our heritage I, I, I yeah it, I like, I like I'm a big Foss. royalist and I and I know it's not for everyone and I apologize obviously I don't intend to offend but uh, I'm a big fan I am I love it I can't get enough would you like some wine Nev oh yes please yeah okay uh so Wow. We've got wow. we've got uh, we've got a very special little piece here, which uh, is called the Pilot King, written by Richard Mallory Alnut, a chief editor of Warbird News, and uh, we've got a little we've got a little piece here each to read. But so I'll kick things off uh, with this first part of this story. So as the UK prepares to crown King Charles III, Stephen Bridgewater looks back at the military flying career of the new monarch. So on Saturday, May the 6th, as in tomorrow, King Charles III of England will be crowned at Westminster Abbey here in London, England. While many pilots may think that they are kings of the sky, this king really is a pilot. While he was still the Prince of Wales, King Charles received pilot training from the Royal Air Force and also flew helicopters with the Royal Navy up until the 1990s. He would routinely fly himself to and from appointments in his aircraft belonging to the Queen's Flight, also known as number 32 the royal squadron royal air force britain's royal family has long history in fact the first recorded flight by a british royal occurred back in july the 17th 1917 when the future king edward the eighth there we go the prince of wales flew over northern france as a passenger in a bristol f2b he would fly several times before the end of the conflict, including a trip over Italy with the legendary Canadian ace Major William Barker, VC, at the controls. However, upon hearing this, uh, the prince's father, King George V, forbade him from flying any further, a situation which he endured until the late 1920s. The king's flight, a brace of Westland WAP 
Wapitis? Huh? Never heard of those before. Uh, which arrived with number 24 squadron at RAF Northall in 1928, became the first two aircraft in the King's flight. The biplane, performing a VIP transport role, and in the 1929, Prince Edward received permission to take flying lessons, whereupon he brought a de Havilland DH-60 Moth uh, registration Golf Alpha Alpha Lima Golf, which his younger brothers, the Dukes of Gloucester and Kent, also used to qualify for their pilot's wings. By the time he ascended the throne in 1936, the prince would fly uh, would buy a further 11 aircraft, including two de Havilland Bus Moths, uh, Golf Alpha Bravo November November and Golf Alpha Bravo Foxtrot Victor, uh, a Fox Moth, and a Golf Alpha Charlie Delta Delta a Dragon and Golf Alpha Charlie Golf Golf uh, and several Dragon Rapides, and uh, specially commissioned Vickers Vistara. Uh, which was Golf Alpha Charlie Charlie Charlie. I'll bring it out. A later, the latter was lavishly fitted out as a royal barge, and like most of the aircraft in his fleet, it wore a blue and red inspired livery by the Brigade of Guards. The Prince employed Flight Lieutenant Edward Mouse Fielden as a full time pilot. He accompanied him on all flights other than those in the Prince's single seat Compass Swift Air Racer. Most of the aircraft were based at RAF Hendon. They were un unofficially referred to as the Royal Flight. When he ascended the throne as King Edward VIII in 1936, uh, one of the new monarch's first decisions was to create an official King's Flight, the world's first aircraft unit for heads of state. Number 24 Squadron at RAF Northolt near London formed the basis of the flight, and the squadron, having operated the aforementioned WAPTIS, Wapitis? I'm going to have to look this one up. As part of its communications flight since 1928. Mouse Fielden received a promotion to captain and retained his role leading the flight as a post he would hold until 1961 when he retired as Air Vice Marshal Sir Edward Fielden. <laughs> King Edward VIII abdicated on December the 11th, 1936. His younger brother, the Duke of York, succeeded him to become King George VI. The new king continued the flight, adding an airspeed Envoy the Three, uh, Golf Alpha Echo X-ray X-ray in May 1937. The Envoy came equipped with seats for four passengers plus a pilot, a wireless operator, and a steward. A wireless operator. Always good to have one of those on board. Uh, Matt. Indeed, yes. Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II succeeded her father as monarch in February 1952, and over the coming years, he renamed the Queen's flight continued. The renamed Queen's flight continued to grow. Although the Queen herself was never a pilot, her husband, the late Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, was a keen flyer. Uh, it was therefore no surprise that the younger Prince Charles was allowed to follow in his father's wake, developing a passion for the skies. While studying at Cambridge. University, the Prince began two and a half years of flight training under uh, tutelage of the then squadron leader Philip Pinney. Like other pilots of his era, the young Prince undertook his pilot training on the venerable de Havilland Canada DHC-1 Chipmunk, with Chipmunk T-10WP-903 allocated specifically to him for lessons. Unlike other chippies, the WP 
MP903 wore a, a day glow red livery and had a large rotating warning lamp dubbed the parrot mounted atop the canopy. WP903 began its service uh, with the Queen's flight on September the 20th, 1960. Interestingly, both Prince Philip and Prince Michael, the Duke of Kent, had learned to fly in this same airframe before Charles started his own flying career. Squadron leader Pinney flew a total of 101 saucies with the man who would become king, starting his training at RAF Tangmere. Uh, Prince Charles uh, went to perform his first solo flight at RAF Bassingbourne on January the 14th 1969 followed by the award of his pilot's license in March 1969 and his RAF preliminary flying badge on August the 2nd of the same year. Pinney and the Prince became firm friends regularly fishing and climbing together and the instructor even attending his famous student's 21st birthday party. WP903 itself would serve the RAF until 1974 when Britain's Ministry of Defence sold it to the Culdrose Gliding Club which used it as a glider tug until December 1996. Wow, that's a long service, isn't it? The Henlow Chipmunk Group then acquired the airframe, restoring it to its Queen's Flight configuration. Today, WP903 can be found at Old Warden Aerodrome, uh, the famous home of the Shuttleworth Collection, over the Coronation Weekend. It'll be appearing at the collection's first air show of the 2023 season. Uh, as a naval, uh, so we're talking naval aviator now, after qualifying for the award of his preliminary flying badge on the chipmunk the prince moved to on to the beagle bassett cc1 clocking up a further 90 hours of multi-engined flying before he transitioned to a jet training course pathé news footage of the young prince flying the bassett is uh, available to view if you take a look at this website we'll put the details of that in the uh, show notes so with the rank of flight lieutenant the Prince arrived at RAF College Cranwell in March 1971 to fly the BAC jet, the Provost T-5. However, before he could take to the skies, he had to complete the same ground school, technical training, combat survival, emergency drills and cockpit procedures as the rest of his course mates. Prince Charles finally started his jet flying on March the 19th, 1971 with squadron leader, later Air Chief Marshal and Sir Richard Johns as his instructor now that's a name that's very familiar to us of course uh, whilst his time whilst his time in the RAF was short the training he received prepared Prince Charles for a military career in the Royal Navy and gave him his first taste of military flying his uh, majesty transferred to the commando training center Royal Marines in Limpstone in Devon in 1972 where he qualified as a helicopter pilot flying the Westland Wessex Mark 5 during his training the Prince earned the double diamond trophy as best pilot before moving to the 707 Naval Air Squadron and then to 845 Naval Air Squadron, flying the commando version of the Wessex from the aircraft Harrier HMS Hermes. He 
uh, received the command of his own ship, the mine hunter HMS Bon Bronington, uh, for the first for the sorry for the final ten months of his active service in the Royal Navy, which ended in 1976. Despite stepping down from the military to concentrate on his royal duties, Prince Charles, now King Charles III, was has sorry has remained close to the armed forces, and in nineteen in 2012, sorry, Queen Elizabeth II awarded him the highest rank as Marshal of the Royal Air Force. The new king also holds the honorary rank of Admiral of the Fleet in the Royal Navy and ascended to the position of Air Commodore-in-Chief of the RAF following the death of Her Royal Highness the Queen Elizabeth II in September of last year. King Charles's two sons, William and Harry, also pursued careers in the military, with William flying Sea King, uh, sea king Search and Rescue helicopters with the RAF and Harry flying the Westland-built uh, WAH-64 Apache with the British Army for Care Corps. Yeah, well, the fact that Britain's new monarch was an aviator was not lost on Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, who used a historic speech in the UK's House of Parliament earlier this year to praise King Charles's support for Ukraine. Referring to the King's own Air Force training, Zelensky said, In Britain, the King is an Air Force pilot, and in Ukraine today, every Air Force pilot is a king. Even after his military career was over, Prince Charles would regularly fly the aircraft of the Royal Flight. However, the monarch gave up flying in 1994 when the four-engine BA-146 airline he was piloting ran off the runway on Isla, an island off the west coast, west coast of Scotland. Uh, according to the official accident report, the aircraft landed with a tailwind component of 12 knots following an unstable approach that was both above the normal approach path and too fast. The aircraft touched down on its nose landing gear and wheelbarrow, delaying the activation of the weight on wheel switches and hence uh, the deployment of the lift spoilers and the selection of ground idle power. Uh, the weight on wheels switch activated with 509 metres of runway remaining, but the wheels then locked and the aircraft aircraft ran off the end of the airstrip and received damage. Thankfully, no one was hurt in the high-profile accident, but, but the prince later commenting, uh, it wasn't quite a crash. We went off the end of the runway, unfortunately. It's not something I recommend. I was nearly did a uh, Prince Charles impression. There, <laughs> Uh, nevertheless, the future King Charles took the decision to ground himself following the accident, uh, something which St James's Palace said at the time was a personal decision uh, the Prince took on his own. Well, of course, we've got the coronation fly past tomorrow. So, uh, but in June 1953, almost 300 aircraft overflew London to mark the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. And the following month, a special royal review took place at RAF Odium. Well, there, Her Majesty the Queen viewed a static park consisting, consisting of more than 300 RAF aircraft and later watched a fly past of over 600 aircraft belonging to the RAF and Commonwealth Air Forces. Pathé News also created a short film covering the 1953 coronation fly past. Fly 
past. Well, this the flypast for King Charles III will be a far more modest affair. And of course, this is what, depending on what the weather's going to do tomorrow, because it's uh, a bit variable, to say the least. Mm. But if everything goes to plan, around 60 aircraft will fly down the mile in London and overhead Buckingham Palace at around 14.30 GMT. Uh, types expected to participate include Juno, Wildcat, Apache, Merlin, Chinook and Puma helicopters, as well as Typhoon and F-35B fast jets, Texan T-1 and Phenom T-1 trainers and heavies, including the C-17A400M Atlas, uh, Voyager, P-8 Poseidon, MRA-1, RC-135 rivet joint, uh, Envoy-4, the Dassault Falcon 900, and the C-130J Hercules. The latter type will be making one of its final public appearances before retiring from RAF service. That's going to be quite a sight, actually. Uh, of course, no Royal Flypass will be complete without the Lancaster, Spitfires and Hurricanes of the RAF's Battle of Britain Memorial Flight and the iconic Scarlet Hawk T1s of the Red Arrows. So no matter what the weather's going to do, one thing seems certain. Britain's new king will be looking up at the flypast with nostalgic eyes and perhaps a twinge of envy that he's not in the cockpit himself. And I'm certainly ho hoping where I'm sitting here in Buckinghamshire tomorrow, at least some of those aircraft might fly over me on the way there or on the way back. So I can't wait. Yes, and of course, don't forget, if you want to um, see the, I think it might be it's either that one or one of the 146s, it's, there's one of these at uh, Duxford now. Yes, there is that. That's on the, display. Uh, 32 Squadron uh, of the that's Queen's it. Flight that's uh, based over at Duxford, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it, when I last saw it there early this year, it only just arrived, but um, I think they're going to be moving that inside to one of the uh, hangars inside the Yeah, I do um, hope so. Duxford, it'd, be, yeah. it'd be a bit tragic if that ended yeah. up with lots of weather damage and yeah. what have you, wouldn't it? Yes, absolutely. No, we didn't do one last week, but this week it is time for a book giveaway. Obviously, as you may know, if you watch the show, Nev's got about six and a half million books in his home studio there uh, that uh, we want to give away as prizes. And uh, Nev, you've got the book, so over to you. What are we giving away this week? Well, this week, uh, it's a really special one. Uh, we've mentioned him already on the programme. It's uh, Sir Richard Johns uh, with his book called Bolts from the Blue. Now, actually, this is a very special one for us because it was the very first long-form interview that we did uh, on the show. Um, we got uh, our good friend Captain Nick Anderson to conduct the interview for us, and what a response we've had from it. It's been absolutely fantastic. Well, I've got another copy of uh, Sir Richard's book here, which has been very kindly given to us by Grub Street Publishing. So, uh, the question for this week, well, we already mentioned, of course, that uh, uh, Sir Richard Johns was actually responsible for part of uh, Prince Charles's training. Mm. Uh, back in 1971 but the the question is what date did sir richard john start his flying career as a cadet at raf crammel so this is sir richard john's flying career not not prince charles's so what date did sir richard john start his flying career as a cadet at raf cramwell Please send your answers to podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. Do not put the answer in the chat room because it will not be counted. Um, make sure you send us your uh, entries by this time next week. 
and we'll read out the winner on the show and I will post the book as I always do on a Saturday morning first class post to wherever you are in the world it's a fantastic read it's over 320 pages uh, it's a incredible insight into his career in the military fascinating read and of course the we've got the um, uh, the playlist on YouTube uh, on our YouTube channel actually uh, which shows all the episodes of the uh, interview that we did or the Nick did with Sir Richard Johns a fascinating series of videos so the uh, question again is what date did uh, Sir Richard Johns uh, start his flying career as a cadet at RAF Cranwell podcast at plaintalkinguk.com is the address to send your answers to yes and you could be in with a chance of winning that and don't forget we'll be running a competition like this uh, as often as we can, often often even as we can each week on the show uh, so you'll have a chance to win one of Nev's many books uh, each week on the show so just quickly again Nev that question for yes, our listeners so what date did Sir Richard John start his flying career as a cadet at RAF Cranwell? There we go. As easy as that. Right, we're going to start to wrap up the show then, episode 455. Social media links, we'll have a quick look at that. Where can you find us online? Well, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Just search for Plain Talking UK. It's as easy as that. Our WhatsApp number is plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six if you want to send a picture and have it on the green screen behind me here or behind matt in here in home studio and uh, yeah if you want to send some pictures of your aircraft models into that whatsapp number uh, we'll bung them on the green screens here so we can all show them to the listeners on the show uh, email us podcast at plaintalkinguk.com uh, send your answers into the competition there as well uh, feedback if you want to send in love to hear your feedback for the show tell us what uh, tell us what you love on the show we'd love to hear from you and also the website all the w's.plaintalkinguk.com on there you'll find all the links to patreon and paypal if you want to become a donator to the show uh, everything helps a dollar two dollars it does it all helps uh, and you also got the links on there to our shop where you can get yourself one of our ptuk t-shirts uh, in various sizes with the embroidered logo on the front and the print on the back very good quality t-shirt 100% cotton t-shirts they are very good indeed and you can also get yourself a grey mug a grey military PTUK mug or you can get yourself a normal PTUK mug if you fancy that as well and uh, we've already had uh, an order coming this week Matt I need to pass that on to you actually for some mugs this week oh, you? Oh, okay. uh, for uh, yeah so I'll pass it on to you but uh, mm. yeah get yourself a grey mug or a PTUK mug and obviously you can find out more about the team on the website as well there's uh, all the various bits and pieces on there so you can find out more about us Actually, I'm just I'm just going to go quite very back quickly. I know we were talking about the Prince Charles thing. And of course, don't forget uh, George Lee, MBE, also instructed Prince Charles as he was then uh, on his first and only glider flight. Um, Bless you. We man. did. Uh, we did. Uh, an, uh, sorry, that, that went well, didn't it? Uh, we did an interview with him too. Uh, we interviewed George Lee, not King Charles, obviously, just to clarify. But uh, yes, yeah, some great interviews on our YouTube channel. By the way, just for your information, when I logged in today, uh, apparently it is our official YouTube channel birthday today. Huh? Yeah. 
Yeah, according to uh, according to Facebook, when I, uh, not Facebook, uh, um, YouTube. YouTube. Um, it it was it, today was the launch day of our official YouTube channel. We did do Ooh. one test stream on my YouTube account many 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 years ago, um, but yeah, apparently it, the birth of our YouTube channel was officially today. So there you go. Ah, <laughs> oh, isn't that nice? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I yeah, and I should say the only reason I know that is because when I logged into creating the li- link for today's show, it popped up as a little congratulations box when I did it. So there you go. <laughs> oh, well, nice? thanks. That's nice. Yeah, it's very nice. Indeed. Very nice indeed. Not the birth of the show, I should say. We were going a lot longer before. A lot longer that. before yeah. that. Oh yes, yeah, yes. Indeed. But uh, that is where we are. Unfortunately, going to have to bring episode four five five to a close. Loads of great stuff in the show this week. Big thanks to everyone. Uh, who's worked on the show in the background. I know John has done loads of work today on the show, so big round of applause to John, as always, for Woo. all his work today on the show. And thanks to all the team, as always, including Armando, who did make it for the first half hour of the show. He's currently he's in the air. He's flying, bless him. So uh, big thanks to him as well. And we'll hopefully all be back next week, apart from Matt, who is not going to be here next week because he is he's off on his holly bobs. He, he's, he's earned himself a holiday. He did put in a holiday form a few weeks back, so uh, Nev signed that. Uh, so he's been approved his holiday for next Friday. I know. You know what that so, means, though, don't you, Carlos? What's that? It means you'll be sat here next week. That means that next week we might be live at 7 p.m. We, we might on Friday. Yeah, indeed. Or we might not. <laughs> So that is it. Always positive, Carlos. Thanks for that. Thank <laughs> you to everyone who's joined us in the YouTube chat room this evening. And thanks as well, as well, not forgetting everyone who listens to the show as an audio podcast each week. Thanks for downloading the show. We all really appreciate your support on the show. That's it then, everyone. Have a great coronation bank holiday weekend if you're here in the UK. And uh, if you're across the globe, I'm sure it will be streamed live in HD on your telly boxes. <laughs> so from me, Carlos here in the home studio, from Matt in the PTUK Master Suite Studios, from Nev in his glorious studios at home, and from John, who's the voice in our ear. Take care, everyone. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. We've got a 455 screen. There we go. Very good. <laughs> and that's the moment it chooses to have a little bit of a wobble. Of Obviously, all times. Like, I mean, it's good YouTube timing, to be fair. Good timing oh, for it to go all, all do lally tap on us.
Yeah, never mind. Yeah. All part of the fun. They were there. That was all there. It, it did start doing this halfway through with a frozen screen. Um, hang on. Yeah, well, it, it's, that's correct, Dirk. Yes. At least it was at the end. I'm just watching it back. Hang on. That's it then, everyone. Had a great coronation bank holiday weekend. Oh, thanks for playing that, back. Just checking. Right, because it's easier for me to hit the go button again now, basically, because then I could still keep it in YouTube. All right, so it's done the social media. It's now just doing this. So bear with us, everyone. Oh, dear. Audio delay. Yeah, what have you done there? Is that just you, or is it everyone? Yeah. Oh, yes. Okay. Didn't didn't finish. Right. Sorry. Just need to run the. <laughs> Don't run the credits again. Well, I've got to because I need it. And then I, then I can edit it all within without having to take it off YouTube. So sorry, oh, right, but I do okay. need to run it again. So uh, restart. There we go. Okay. One moment, caller. Please hold. <laughs> 